Thanks a lot for being here today. My name is Kevin Conover. You're listen, listening to Educate for Life Radio, and we broadcast um, down here locally in Southern California on KPRZ 1210 AM. We also uh, are on FM 106.1 in North County. And uh, of course, then we're broadcast all over the social media environment. And uh, you can listen to us on Apple. You can listen, listen to us on Google, on YouTube, all those different uh, social media platforms. And um, my guest this evening, I'll tell you a little bit about him. Um, his name is Mr. Pudawa, Andrew Pudawa, and uh, he's the principal speaker and director of the Institute for Excellence in Writing. He's a graduate of the Talent Education Institute in Matsumoto. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Japan. He holds a certificate of child brain development from the Institutes for the Achievement of Human Potential in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, and I love this, uh, Andrew, you, it says on your website here, his best endorsement is from an Oklahoman third grade teacher who called him the most powerful influence in modeling what kind of teacher I want to be. And uh, that's a pretty, that's high praise right there. Uh, thanks a lot for being on the program this evening. Oh, it's a pleasure, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm a teacher also. And this is what I'm always working towards is trying to be a better teacher. I really want to um, just do a good job of, of loving the students and helping them grow to be all that God has called them to be, you know, and uh, I think that's the, the heart of every teacher. And I'm always looking for good teachers um, who, who can model what I'm hoping to become. And there are several in the school that I teach at that I, I look at and I go, man, how are they such a good teacher? And that's really my, my question. I kind of want to start off with you. We're, we have a really interesting subject that we're going to about, talk about today. For those of you listening, um, we're going to be talking about persecution and the potential for persecution coming up for um, you know Christians and homeschool families and, and these sorts of things. Um, but um, I wanted to start off by asking you, uh, Mr. Pudua, um, you know, why do people like you so much? Because you are, people rave about you. And, uh, you know, I, I go to the homeschool conventions and it's like, yes, Mr. Pudua, Mr. Pudua, Mr. And, and I'm just like, man, what is it that this guy does that, that, um, people love him so much. And do you, have you thought about that? Like, what is it that you do that specifically people really are drawn to? Um, well, a little bit. I part of it's just being old. You know, you hang around long <laughs> enough, you meet enough people that there's just a mass that know you. So age, you know, has an advantage. Um, but you know, I have been very blessed to work with children of, of a very wide range of ages and demographic and circumstance. I've taught music, I've taught academic subjects, I have traveled around the world and taught children, you know, all over the country and in different countries. So I think that breadth of experience, you know, has allowed me to develop kind of this ability instinct, if you will, uh, to connect with children of all sorts. Mm. And one of the things that uh, I suspect you use just from looking at you, I don't know much about you, but I have found that when you can teach with a balance between humor and levity mm. and then challenge. You know, those are the two things that children, I think, respond to very well. They they like to laugh, but they also yeah. like to be challenged and uh, called up to do their best. And so those would be the two things that I don't necessarily walk into a room and think, how am I going to do that? But it is part of just the way I 
you know, operate. And I'm also very blessed to have a, a content, to have content, a writing system of teaching structure and style and composition mm. that's just profoundly effective. I didn't invent the thing. I met some Canadians 20, 32 years ago and learned it from them and then accidentally made a business out of it. And uh, it works so well that part of the magic isn't me, but the system. And so, you know, all of those things uh, kind of combined uh, have put me in a position where people do tend to either like me or absolutely not like me. So <laughs> they're kind of on the extremes, but that's usually the way it is. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, you know, um, there's so many different things you can teach, right? You can teach math, you can teach chemistry, you can teach, there's so many different subjects that are necessary to teach. Um, so why English? What is What drew you to English and why have, have you made that your your life's calling um, that that you're teaching kids English? What's the what's the impact of, of teaching English? Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny because I don't have any formal training uh, in English or education. I, uh, I went to Japan and lived there for three years. I studied with Dr. Suzuki of Suzuki Method. And for the first 10, 15 years of my adult life, I was a full-time um, music teacher, Suzuki Violin, early childhood. And then uh, because honestly, it's hard to make a living and keep your wife home and have kids and pay your bills by being a music teacher, I was always looking for a side gig. Mm. I was always looking for some little business I could do on the side that would allow me to continue to be able to teach music. And I I just stumbled into this thing. I, I learned this program from these Canadians. I went and I, I made a little flyer and got 20 people to pay 40 bucks to listen to me talk for an hour or for a day. And I thought, wow, you know, that has potential. Uh, but over the years, I've come to see that I think teaching writing is much more like teaching music than many other kind of academic subjects, because it's really about modeling. It's about technique. It's mm -hmm. about um, progressive development of skills and mastery and confidence built through uh, a solid understanding. And so a lot of the things I learned in the context of teaching music um, have cross applied very, very well into this world of teaching uh, English composition. And uh, our company, we have, you know, some phonics stuff for little kids. We have a spelling program. We have uh, a literature aspect, but most of what we do is we create uh, these lessons and video courses and, and materials for teachers as well to help children learn how to or collect up, organize, and present thoughts on paper as well as possible. And so our little tagline is listen, speak, read, write, think. And that's, that's, awesome. that's fantastic. Focus. Yeah, I, I off your uh, the what your website iew.com, um, and for those of you listening, that's the Institute for Excellence in Writing. Uh, you you wrote that your mission it says our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. And um, you know, I want to get into the persecution aspect because. Uh, you know, that's what we we told people we we're going to we were going to be talking about here. And so I want to talk about that. But I feel like this is so important. Um, I got this I, a quote from um, have you heard of Jordan Peterson? 
Oh, I am a huge P- Jordan Peterson fan. <laughs> I listen okay. to his podcast religiously. Well, uh, there you go. Okay, so we're we we have something in common there. I, I love that guy, and um, uh, thank God he's actually recently um, professed uh, a Christ and actually become a believer in his own words. So thank God for that, and I'm praying for him. But he has a quote that I wanted to read because I feel like it's so powerful, and, and um, you know he's he's become so popular. And he says, the best way to teach people critical thinking is to teach them to write. There is no difference between writing and thinking. If you can think and speak and write, you are absolutely deadly. Now, he doesn't mean that in a bad way. He means that in a good way. And then he says, nothing can get in your way. It's the most powerful weapon you could possibly provide someone with. Um, do, you, do you concur? Is that some, something that you would, you would uh, agree with him on? Yeah, I, I absolutely do, because, uh, you know, uh, to, you know, quote Francis Bacon, he said, um, reading makes a full man, or woman, obviously, uh, reading makes a full man, speaking makes a ready man, and writing makes an exact man. Mm-hmm. And so there is a level of precision, which writing demands, that we don't really see in the rest of our kind of normal operations. And, you know, I meet a lot of kids who don't like writing. In fact, I would say possibly a majority of nine to 12 year old boys would self-profess. I hate this. Um, And, you know, part of the magic of what I do is I connect with them and then I give them a system that's very at the beginning, just nuts and bolts. You know, you don't have to be creative. You just have to apply this principle and do it this way. And look, you get a good result. Oh, it's not so mm-hmm. bad. But I always tell kids, I say, you know, it doesn't matter what you go into later in life. You know, you may go into the military. You may go into engineering. You may go into garbage collecting. You may do something you can't even imagine. Um, it doesn't really matter what you go into if you can speak well and write well, you will rise up in a position of influence and leadership. And, you know, for Christian homeschool kids, which are the majority of kids that I bump into, you know, I point out God has a plan for you. And, you know, you don't have to like doing this, but if you learn to do it decently well or learn to do it very well, God can use you in a much Mm. greater way wherever you end up in whatever sphere of, of work or application you find yourself. I love that. I love it. I feel, I feel like uh, kids need to hear that more often um, because sometimes they don't connect the dots and they don't see the relevance of it. And I think that if that was made more clear to them, that they might um, be provoked to, to enjoy it more and work harder at it maybe. Um, But um, you know, I want to talk about because critical thinking. I, I it struck it struck me because you know I'm I teach kids apologetics. I'm a twelfth grade Bible teacher, and I teach them how to defend their faith. And so, critical thinking is it, it's just uh, you know saturated with uh, that that the ability to think critically. And so uh, they have to, or you you just can't. We were just talking about logic in class today, and the, and the necessity of it in t- coming to good conclusions and these sorts of things. And um, you know, your topic when when um, uh, my assistant Jason uh, was talking to you about coming on the radio program, he said, "Hey, um, you know, Mr. Pudua has a a topic on persecution." And I thought, well, that's interesting. Well, <laughs> you know, English persecution. I, I wasn't sure where where you know how that how that comes about, but 
But honestly, if you're critical, critical thinking and you look around today, um, you're going to notice, hey, um, there are things happening today that are alarming and that we should be uh, thinking about and planning for. And, um, you know, also uh, figuring out how do we respond to these issues in light of scripture, in light of what we know. And so can you share with our listeners uh, what what caused you to end up deciding to put together a uh, message on the issue of persecution? Well, you know, as I've uh, traveled around and done a lot of speaking, mostly at Christian homeschool conventions over the past couple decades, you know, I have expanded from just how to, you know, do outlines and write papers to how do you think about the world? And, you know, these words critical thinking are are kind of buzzwords and people have a very hard time defining them. And of course, if you go off to a, a college or university, mostly critical thinking means if you can tell the professor what he wants to hear, then that's good critical thinking. But yeah. one of the things I uh, discovered early on in trying to help kids get stuff out of their brain, because the biggest problem is I don't know what to write. I can't think of anything. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to say. And what I put together was the trick is questions. If you know how to ask yourself good questions, then you can come up with ideas. And that's true for the world itself. That's true for life. You know, someone who wakes up in the morning says, um, how can I get enough money so I can buy a new iPhone? Well, they'll have one quality of life. Someone else can wake up and say, how can I grow today in wisdom and virtue that I could better serve my fellow man and God? Well, that's a totally different question. And, and so the quality of the questions you ask will determine the quality of your life. Hmm. So, you know, as we headed into... 2020 and everything shut down, I had been moving in this direction of, you know, are we teaching our children to ask good questions? And what's mm. the technique of doing that? And you working in apologetics, obviously, you you are, are all over that. And of course, Jordan Peterson is all over that as well. Mm -hmm. But yeah. so many things demanded questioning uh, in that year. And we, we saw just outrageous expansion of government power, uh, which should be something that we would all instinctively question if we have the background of having, you know, read the right literature and had the right conversations and have uh, a biblical foundation and understand what is God's role for government. Um, so... So looking at that and then this spew of misinformation that was coming out. And of course, the joke is, what's the difference between a conspiracy theory and a, and the truth? You know, three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Every, everything's just so I, I, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to create a talk called Preparing for Persecution, a curriculum proposal, because I thought, who wants to come and hear about that? Actually, the first one I did Honestly, I titled it <clears throat> Preparing for Martyrdom. And I thought, oh, wow. well, that's just too depressing. No one's going <laughs> to come to hear about that. Um, but I was contemplating the fact of, of, of you know, how have, how have Christians educa educated their children throughout history? And I am pretty darn sure the Christians in the first, second, third centuries didn't 
say, oh, I want to educate my children so they can go to a good school, so they can get a good degree, so they can get a good job, so they can be comfortable, so their children can be comfortable. Mm. No, they they trained, they prepared them to suffer and possibly die for the mm. truth, capital T truth, incarnate mm. word of truth. Mm. And I thought we're just so far away because the normal conversation I have with parents about homeschooling or schools is, well, what about college? What about, you know, career? Well, I don't think that college and career is the most important thing that parents should be thinking about right now. And there's so many indicators that we are moving into, I would say, if not inevitably, at least potentially, a very, very chaotic time where people who believe in truth will be persecuted and people who profess Jesus Christ will be hated for that. Mm. We're not used to it. You didn't grow up that way. My parents and your parents, we don't even know anyone in this country who is persecuted for their faith. That's why I found uh, perhaps you came across Rod Dreher's book, Live Not by Lies. I saw that in your notes. That's actually one of the things I noted that I wanted to ask you about. Um, but yeah, please uh, share share with yeah, us. Uh, I, I would put that as as one of the most important books in print right now. It okay. was by far the best book of 2020 uh, that I read. And you know what he did is he met people who had relatives or who lived in Eastern Europe during the Soviet era, hmm. and they said this country is going exactly the way that hmm. we went in Bulgaria and Hungary and Czechoslovakia and East Germany and Russia. So he actually went over to East Eastern Europe and spent quite a bit of time there meeting and interviewing and talking to people with this basic question. What happened from your perspective? Did you know it was happening? And how did you survive with your family and your faith intact? Wow. So I would say the first half of the book is kind of depressing because he, he creates this this mass of things where you see, okay, with the cancel culture and the media censorship and, and all that, it's kind of like 1984 in the memory hole. And then you've got Brave New World and absolute licentiousness with, with no concept of morality or family or any good thing. And then you look at the Nazi era and the total control uh, the government had over the propaganda that everyone and taking the kids out of home and getting them into, you know, Hitler youth and all that. And then, of course, the whole Soviet bloc era uh, where people basically were just be continuously lied to. Mm. And so by re by the end of the first half of the book, you just feel like you're right in the middle of all that horrible stuff. And oh gosh, is there any way to turn it back short of a massive revival? Mm. In this country, I don't see any way that we that we undo the direction that we're going. But the second half of the book, uh, you got to get through the first half and it's kind of depressing. But the second half is so inspiring because he tells the stories of these families and these individuals and these these Christians who who resisted, who were able to hold on to their faith and the truth in the face of all those lies. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the book is well summed up uh, in the statement at the end, which he took from uh, a letter by Solzhenitsyn. Actually, the title is from Solzhenitsyn, Live Not By Lies. 
But the point is, you may have to live in a world of lies, but mm. you do not have to let those lies live in you. Mm. <clears throat> so that's where, you know, I started with this. And then, you know, I read a few more books, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, which uh, we don't have time to go into that, but it, it does a great job of explaining kind of how we got to where we are uh, with the early romanticists who were dissatisfied with the the standard of uh, monogamy and family, and then how that rolled into the uh, 1800s period with you had Freud and Darwin and Marx kind of all interspersed there. And that and and what we saw was the total failure of of economic Marxism. We have a we have great examples still existing in this day of the total failure of class struggle based on economics and mm. resolving that through a government control. So instead, and what Carl Truman points out is we now have essentially um, sexual Marxism. We we have a level of cultural Marxism where it's pitting class against class, not economically, but by identity. And mm. so you and I, we are, I would assume you are as well as I, a white, cisgendered, heterosexual, middle-class male. And well, I can, I, I'm told I can identify as whatever I want nowadays, right? So, right. But, but it, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But, you know, if that's how people would identify us, they would class us that way. We've just become the most oppressive group of people on the planet in that whole ideology. Hmm. And so uh, Truman explains this very, very well. Um, he's got a, a, that book is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And then he's got another book, I'm not sure of the title, which is kind of a shorter version, uh, more of a, it's philosophy light. And then his next book is philosophy really light. But it's no. good because people have to figure out how did this happen? Because think, would you have imagined 10 years ago what we have today with things like drag queen hour for kindergartners in public schools and libraries? I mean, it's just it's beyond the beyond. Yeah, and I was yet- just talking with my students about this today. I just said, I said, this was not on anybody's radar. When I was in high school, this was a non-issue. These were not even, they, they, they were nowhere. Nobody, people would have laughed at you if you said, uh, this is what's coming and this is what you're going to be experiencing. People would have said, get out. There is no way that's going to happen. I, I was showing a video and uh, put out by the Family Policy Institute in Washington, where he interviews college students, asking them specifically um, if he can identify as a woman. And they all agree, yes, you can identify as a woman. But then he takes it further. I don't know if you've seen this video. It's it's all over the place now. He says, uh, could I be a Chinese woman? And all the students say, yeah, you could be a Chinese woman. And then he says, could I be seven years old? And then he ends with, could I be six foot five? And by the time one guy actually says, I think you could persuade me that you're six foot five. And you're just like, my students are like, what? What is going on? Right. And um, it's just uh, astonishing. But we were emphasizing, you know, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and that uh, fools despise uh, knowledge. You, you can't you can't. Uh, I mean, this is where you go. It's it's I never in the past when I, when I would read that verse about, um, you know, a fool, you become a fool when you abandon God, the 
it was more like, okay, well, the Bible's, you know, telling you, you're not real bright. But now I, I look at it and I go, wow, you, that could not be more clear that you truly do become a fool when you abandoned the, when you abandoned the foundation of God. Uh, it's, it's stunning. Well, and when you have whole groups of people who've done that and profess foolish things together and then become active in demanding their right, not just to say what they want to say, but demanding that you agree with them and capitulate to their demands, then, you know, you've moved into a completely different zone. So I, you know, I came to this whole thought of, okay, if we need to prepare our kids and ourselves for a time when, well, maybe it's beyond the inconvenience of being canceled or being disliked or people saying bad things about you. Maybe it's even beyond the inconvenience of um, getting a chip in your hand so you can go shopping at Whole Foods. Hmm. Uh, maybe it's actually a situation where you have no job and no money and no vehicle and no place to live, or maybe even you're imprisoned for some reason, separated from family or friends or any like-minded people. How do you survive that? Because no one I personally know has ever survived that. Hmm. So my point is we need to create a curriculum that helps kids be ready in case that happens. And then my my extension on that is even if it doesn't happen, well, then we're all better off for having been ready for it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and you said um, you said earlier uh, that the greatest goal for our kids is, you know, when teaching them English, how to read, write, uh, to think. The greatest goal is not college. What is the greatest goal? What is the greatest goal? Do you believe um, it, it, it is? Well, I, I would address that with something I have said many times. In fact, one of my favorite things to do is when I get invited to do a commencement address, um, because I like to talk to teenagers and say, don't buy into this idea that you should try to find out what you want to do and do it. And that'll make you successful and happy Hmm. because how do you know, right? Instead, try to figure out the next right step of what God wants you to do and do that. And then you will be happier because you will be doing the Lord's work and you don't know what it's going to look like. In fact, you can't imagine your life 10 years from now. And yes, maybe you have deep in yourself, okay, I want to be a doctor. I know God wants me to do that. Okay, well, there's some hoops you've got to jump through. Um, You know, I have a strong interest in flying airplanes or aviation or farming. Pursue interests, but always keep in mind the question, what does God want for me to do? And that will lead to greater satisfaction greater happiness, and I would argue probably greater uh, success in the overall measurements of life. Mm, absolutely. Uh, on your, uh, in the notes that I was over, I was looking over, um, 
you you reference a book called uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, and you mm. mentioned three great untruths. Oh, this was really interesting to me. Um, you put the untruth of fragility, the untruth of emotional reasoning, and then the untruth of us versus them. Um, can you can you break those down for our listeners? What what's the sure. emphasis here? Yeah, I would say for any parent of a student or any teenager who's college bound in any way, this is a very important book, capital V, capital I, um, because what Haight and Lukianyoff do in this book is they basically point out that the entire world of higher education now believes deeply, espouses, continually promotes these three lies. So the first one is the lie of fragility. In other words, if it doesn't kill you, it will make you weaker. That's why we can't allow someone with opposing views to speak on our campus because we'll be triggered and offended and suffer emotional distress and all that. You know, that's, that is a lie that is a lie against the very biology of everything. It, it is actually the opposite, you know, um, that if it doesn't kill you, it generally will make you stronger. Nietzsche said that, but this mm -hmm. is true at a biological level. If you create stress or you restrict food or you put extreme temperatures for yeast cells or mice, guess what? They get stronger, they live longer. It's called hormesis. And so, you know, if you're at all in the world of, of fitness, nutrition, uh, intermittent fasting, any of that stuff that makes you stronger and better, you realize that stress generally will make you stronger mm. up to a certain point, the right sure. kind of stress. And so that's the whole idea of a college is iron sharpens iron. Let's mm. invite people with opposing views so that we can both practice critical thinking in the true sense of the word. So that's that's the first uh, great lie. And he, he says that, you know, if the professors aren't professing it, all the students around you are believing it. And it's just, it's the inculcation of that lie. Very hard to escape. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, um, we've been talking about Jordan Peterson here. Uh, one of the things he said that uh, really hit me when I was watching one of his, his interviews that uh, became very famous, went viral, uh, whereas uh, the, the interviewer asked him, uh, why do you have why does your right to tell the truth uh, take precedence over my right not to be offended? And then he says, if you can't risk offending somebody, then you can't ultimately get to truth. And I yeah. was like, oh, that is it. That is that was so good. And that now that's become so popular. But that yeah. that's basically what you're just what you were just explaining. Well, we thank God for Jordan Peterson. That's for sure. <laughs> he, he is the biggest voice of sanity that we can see in the in the larger public now uh yeah. the second one uh what was it the second one you said the untruth of emotional reasoning right so you know trust your feelings you know make your decisions based on how you feel well this goes back i mean this contradicts every philosopher that's ever lived all the way back to the most ancient ones who basically said don't trust your feelings trust your mind trust your reason trust your logic trust your your elders trust tradition, trust anything except your feelings. Yeah. Well, why? I mean, you make an important decision when you are feeling something 
That's inherently dangerous. You're feeling happy. You're feeling sad. You're feeling angry. You're feeling frustrated. You're feeling hopeless. You don't want to make important decisions in your life or even unimportant decisions when you're in that world of emotional reactiveness. Mm -hmm. And Aiden Lukianoff do a really good job of unpacking this and talking about how this, this actually violates the very principle of sanity. And they do talk about uh, behavioral cognitive therapy as a way to help people out of, you know, mental illness. And, and basically that's the bottom line is don't trust your feelings. Mm. Think it through with someone who can help you think well, a mentor. So, yeah. And yet you see all these people, uh, you know, I feel my truth. I, I sat next to a, a young woman on an airplane a month or so ago. She's probably around 30 and she was, you know, in a PhD program at USC or something. She worked for the Veterans Administration. She was, you know, on this career track and I really didn't want to, this is so funny. I did not want to talk to her. Yeah. She was like the only person on the whole airplane wearing a mask. And I really didn't want to talk to her. And this little voice said, talk to her. I didn't know. <laughs> I'm not going to, you need to talk to her. Well, funny thing is, we both fired up our computers, tried to get the internet, and it didn't work. So she talks to me, says, is your internet working? I go, no, I don't think it is. And we talked the whole rest of the time. But, you know, <laughs> she it was a very good conversation. I had to be very careful, obviously. Um, but for me, it's good to meet someone who is not like-minded so that I can remember that everyone is not like me. Mm. But she used an expression I thought was just so foreign to my way of thinking about anything. And mm. the expression, we hear people say it all the time, my truth, mm. like my truth. How how could you have your truth? I mean, truth is truth. It, it, it's yeah. true. It's, it's objective. That's the whole purpose of it being truth is to be objective. And yet it struck me how many people in that millennial and younger age range walk around saying, well, this is my truth and mm -hmm. therefore it trumps everything else you're never yeah, going to get anywhere in life with that yeah these are buzzwords i mean it's crazy and uh it is what has dominated our culture is this whole my truth kind of thing which is mind-boggling and uh that's what we're what we're actually talking about in my class right now is objective versus subjective and um you know the big question of course is is morality objective or subjective? And uh, and I never thought we'd get to the point where where somebody would say that, you know, it's it's subjective whether you know um, water is wet or something like that. You know, where they're 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 making facts. Uh, uh, sub science quote science is subjective. All of a sudden, uh, it was one thing to debate morality, but now all of a sudden it's hey, you can't really know truth because everybody has their own truth, which right. is just it's, in, insanity. It's back to the what is a woman movie yeah. and how ridiculous. So, yeah, you know, that. The, then the third, and this kind of leads right into that, and that is everyone is either good or bad. And, and hate, Lucky Enough and Hate don't have a Christian perspective on this. So they don't go to where I would go thinking but I would quote Chesterton back at that and say, you know, G.K. Chesterton said, what's wrong with the world? I am. It's my sin 
Mm. It's sin that is the problem, and we all have it. And, and when you begin to deny the existence of sin, which is the popular psychology, mm. then you remove your personal responsibility for bad things that happen in the world. And, and so now here's the problem. If someone else is bad in your view, then they must be all bad if, because you're not bad. So if they mm. disagree with you, they must be bad. So yeah. if I believe this and someone else disagrees with me, well, I can't be wrong because I don't sin. They must be absolutely bad. And we see the polarization politically. We see it, you know, it, with the critical race theory stuff sneaking yep. into classrooms. And, and you know, I don't know how we ever get back to sanity unless we get back to the fact that we have original sin. And that is a problem that we fight um, individually and collectively. And our only real tool to fight that is the grace of Jesus Christ, uh, the, the example of Christ and the the saints that that have come before us. So, you know, it's it's a I, I don't know how we get kids who are I mean, in a very short five years, high schoolers are going to be voting and working. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. That's scary. Yeah. And, and yeah. Those, the college students right now are going to be, you know, basically running a lot of stuff and and that's just going to continue i don't know how we get back to the point where we can have people understand the fundamental point of humanity which is we are fallen creatures and we need a savior mm. without that i don't i don't see much hope for for society rebuilding yeah so uh you know and i i you know, God, God can flip things on its head. Like, you know, very quickly, he he's good at that. Um, he can change things and, and steer things in the other direction very, very quickly. I'm always encouraged by the different stories I've read where God moved in, in a, maybe even a single individual and all of a sudden, you know, everything changed. But, um, I'm sure our listeners are wondering, you know, because we we're talking about persecution here. Um, you were talking about, we need to, we need to prepare our kids with a mindset that knows how to deal with this, if it comes and, and, and you put the disclaimer out there that, Hey, maybe it won't, <laughs> that'd be wonderful. If, if we didn't have to deal with what they did and, uh, you know, had to deal with in places like communist Romania and these sorts of things. I mean, that, that just sounds insane, but, and, uh, God willing, he'll have mercy on us. But, but, um, do you have an outline for that as far as like, okay, how do I prepare my children to be able to, uh, think through these difficult potential decisions that that are coming down the pike maybe well my um my argument here is that when you're stripped of everything and you have nothing what's left it's your identity mm. and that we need to we need to learn and teach and practice ourselves and teach our children how to identify ourselves correctly and I believe that that's all about relationship. So, mm. you know, if I were to identify myself, if someone said, Andrew Pudua, who are you? Right. Yeah. I, I would try to start with the top and most important things. Well, I am a created being. I have a relationship with a creator. 
that is an identity that supersedes all other identities. And it's a mm. relationship. This is why Darwinism ha has been so pernicious is mm. because if you're a created being, everything flows from that differently than if you believe you're an accident of the universe. Mm. Uh, secondly, I'm, I am a follower of Christ. So that adds more to my identity that that and and that I, I would argue that identity is expressed in code and creed, the rules, the precepts, the laws, the guidelines. What do we what do we do? And then the creed, what do we believe that helps us do what we should do? And, you know, if we look at the Old Testament, the code preceded the creed. First thing God did was said, you are my people, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. He didn't really explain why in too much great detail. Mm. That all comes later. Um, so um, I'm a, I am a created being. I have a relationship with a creator. There's a code and a creed. There are things that I do and don't do and things that I believe because of that. I'm a follower of Christ. That makes the code a lot harder. Because the commands of Christ are impossible for humans to, to accomplish without the grace of Christ. Um, and, there, and there's a creed. And, and we say these things again and again. Then I might go down one more step. And I would say I am a member of a church. That church has a code and a creed. If I were to go down another step, I am a husband, a spouse uh, that has a code and a creed. You think about wedding vows. Basically, mm. here's the code. I promise to do this. I promise not to do that. Mm. Here's the, the theology of marriage. There's the creed. Then I would go down and say, I am a father and a grandfather. I would get down to the point of saying, you know, I am a business owner. And there's, you know, things that I do and don't do and things mm. that I believe that shape that relationship between me and the people I work with. And, and, you know, then I'd probably get down to I'm an, an American citizen, you know, and there's a code and a creed. I mean, we all grew up saying the Pledge of Allegiance. What is mm. it? It's a it's a creed. We we believe in our Constitution. It's a code. So my argument is that the best way to prepare children for being stripped of everything they have in in a position of perhaps having to suffer even a physical pain and persecution is for them to know deep level who they are and that we communicate these codes and creeds through um, song, scripture, story, um, uh, community and culture. That, that's what builds into children the, the understanding of who they are. And that's why, you know, I think Christian tradition has been very strong on um, being able to memorize, recite scripture. What would you want to be able to say to yourself if you are stuck in, you know, a prison cell in the most miserable of situations? Mm -hmm. What would you want to be able to say to other people who are stuck there with you? Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so select the scriptures do it intentionally, make a list. And, and what I said to the audience is find five songs, five um, scriptures or quotes, five poems, and what was the other thing? Five stories that you want to know these 
really, really well, so well that you can recall them under duress and stress so well that you can share them with other people who are going to be desperate for a word of truth. That's fantastic. Uh, that is, uh, thank you for sharing that. I think that's a big blessing to, it'll be a big, big blessing to a lot of people. Um, and I love that um, because even if, even if we aren't under intense persecution, that's relevant and important to our lives. Um, just from a decision-making process, you don't have to, you don't have to, uh, you know, muddle around uh, trying to figure out what you're going to do next when you have that ingrained within you, oh, under this circumstance, this is what I do, right? Here's how I respond to somebody who treats me this way. This is what I do in my workplace when this scenario happens. And so um, that's great um, because um, I just, I, I like that the identity of who I am as a Bible-believing, God-fearing Christian. Um, and that, of course, all plays out in scripture. Um, I had one more question. We're, we're, we're running up against the clock here, but I had one more question I wanted to ask you that I was curious about. Um, you know, there's been a big uh, change in our culture, obviously, with video. Kids are on video constantly. And um, even books are digital now. And uh, excuse me. And there's a book that came out um, called Reader Come Home. I'm not sure if you've heard of it or not. Have you heard of the book Reader Come Home? It's, it's I, on my shelf. Uh, and ironically, I have only read the very first part of it. Um, okay. So I, I was I, just- I know of the book, yeah. I was curious if you had an opinion on how digital uh, text is affecting kids' ability to process information. I'm going to read the book. I haven't read it yet. Uh, it was referred to me by um, one of our phenomenal English teachers. And um, and I wanted to just, uh, I was just curious as somebody who's so involved. Um, do you think that the, the digital um, environment is making it more difficult for kids to think critically about what they're reading. Um, do you have an opinion about that? Oh, very much so. Um, you, you know, it's interesting because all the research, all the research that has been done on education and screens versus paper is all in favor of paper. Hmm. Whether you're reading, whether you're learning to read, whether you're writing, whether you are studying paper always has a better effect on the brain on memory on retention and there's a whole lot of reasons in fact i actually have an hour-long talk on this very subject called oh, paper wow. and pen what the research says um and the saddest thing to me is that the school districts are are careening away from that denying the science denying hmm. the research wanting to go digital everything so that yes you know we have to have a paperless classroom that's the ideal we have hmm. to have tablets and ipads for six-year-old children to learn to read and do math and uh, you know by the time the <laughs> empirical evidence the clinical evidence will will come out it'll be a whole generation of people who've been handicapped in this way. Mm. So, uh, you know, I, I do have uh, several talks where I strongly encourage parents to not use screen-based educational or entertainment materials with young children. Now, obviously, at a certain point, 
um, there's a tremendous value of a device like a Kindle in that you can carry around a whole library and you can mark it, you can use it, but it is not the best way to learn to read. And there's all sorts of research as to why that's true. Okay. Uh, I'd be happy to send you some of those studies if you're interested in looking into it at a, another point in time, but uh, I am yes, interested. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, just in our heart, we know, you know, yeah. sitting, sitting in the living room, reading a book of poems, reading, you know, Lord of the Rings to your children in a book is way different than looking at your computer screen or your tablet or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's been my experience without even having the, it even been brought up that it is more difficult to, um, I don't know what it is, compartment, compartment, compartmentalize the content in a way that is easy to, to, uh, recall. Um, yes. I don't know what it is there, but, uh, I'm, I'm very, uh, interested in that. And, um, uh, shout out to Mrs. Breeden. Thanks for uh, recommending that book, Mrs. Breeden. So uh, she's our our twelfth grade uh, English teacher, and uh, our school does a phenomenal job in the English department. So, um, but um, for those of you listening, my guest is Andrew Pudawa and uh, IEW.com Institute for Excellence in Writing. If you want to look more into that, and uh, Mr. Pudawa, you you did say that uh, there's a free resource on your site that they can uh, go to. Can you um, reference that? Yeah, it's uh, IEW.com slash free hyphen lessons, free dash lessons. And you can get uh, three uh, weeks of any of our writing courses, three weeks of our Fix-It Grammar program, uh, level one, I believe, of our poetry memorization program. And then, of course, if you have any questions about any of it, we've got people standing by all the time to help help you figure out what you might like to take a look at. And it's all free. It's all digital. And then if you want to buy a product as a result of that, we'll help you do that too. That's great. Well, I am so uh, grateful that you came on the show and for everything you're doing. Uh, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. Keep up your very important work, Kevin. Thank you, Andrew. I'm going to end with uh, one more with Jordan Peterson's quote here because I like it so much. And uh, and Andrew likes Jordan Peterson too. So, <laughs> so um, here's the quote. The best way to teach people critical thinking is to teach them to write. There is no difference between writing and thinking. If you can think and speak and write, you are absolutely deadly in a good way. Nothing can get in your way. It's the most powerful weapon you could possibly provide someone with. Wow. What a, uh, what a testament to getting better at writing and reading and thinking. And, um, my website is educateforlife.org. If you need resources for, uh, apologetics, learning how to answer the tough questions about God and the Bible, all kinds of content is available for you on that site. And, um, uh, you can check it out. Great for your family, a home group, church, whatever the case that's educateforlife.org. And I just want to thank you so much for being here. We have some wonderful guests coming up, including Mark Armitage, who uh, founded uh, found uh, one of the largest triceratop horns ever found that actually has soft tissue in it. Incredible. So uh, you can join us uh, next week and the week after some other fantastic guests coming up. So uh, thanks again, Andrew, and uh, we'll see you next time.